That's what that's what Paul refers to. Abram believed God. He trusted God. He had faith in God's promise. And so he waited. By the way, this was the second time that God referred to Abram being the father of a great nation. The first time was all the way back in chapter 12 when God said, pack up and leave your father's house and go to the land that I'm going to show you and I'm going to make you into a great nation. By most estimates, when Abram was called out of the land of Ur, he was 75 years old. Right. 75 years old. Here, that's a little bit spottier with his timeline here. Here he was probably between 80 and 85 years old. So there's been five years since God said you're going to be the father of a great nation. This is why Abram says, how am I going to be the father? You haven't given me a kid yet. Now, Abram's not stupid. Yes, they had long lifespans back then, but there comes a point in time where the biological clock winds down to be not quite so crass about it. There comes a point in time where you don't have kids anymore. We stopped 13 years ago. I was only 30. He's 80. He says, God, I'm still not, I trust you, I believe you, but time's a ticking. Right now, my heir is going to be my servant. God says, now go, go take a look at the stars in the sky. By the way, if you're in the middle of the desert and you look at the stars in the sky, you're likely to see the Milky Way, which looks like a cloud. There are so many stars, it's so dense, right? Go ahead and count those for me, I'll wait. Right, this is God talking. Go ahead and count those for me. I'll wait. Oh, you're not done yet? That's how many offspring you're going to have. And Abram believed him. It would be another 15 years before Isaac was born. So now we are looking at a period of 25 years. Abram waited. That's what it means to have faith. That's what it means to trust God, to believe God. It's not blind faith. It's not baseless faith. It's a faith that has a foundation. Why did Abram believe God? Well, outside of the obvious church answer, you know, because the Holy Spirit has enabled him to, that's the church answer. Why would Abram believe God? He's already waited for up to 10 years with no son. Genesis 15, verse 7, God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur from the, of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. God reminds Abram everything that he's been through. What had Abram gone through in this point? He had survived a famine, a time in Egypt. He had seen the hand of God against Pharaoh. Now, Abram trusted God, right? He believed God and he obeyed God, but that didn't keep him from doing his own thing because when they went to Egypt, what did he do? Oh, no, 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 here's the... As they're getting ready to cross into Egypt, he looks at his wife, who, who by the way, is 
what, 10 years younger than he is? Give or take? Right? She's, she's 60. And he looks at her and says, you're still a looker. You're beautiful enough the king is going to want you so that he doesn't come kill me. We're going to tell everybody that you're my sister. I don't know how this sounds like a good idea. All right? I mean, yeah, the, the first part, you know, honey, I think you're gorgeous. So much so that the pharaoh is going to want you. That, that probably would have been the best place to stop. <laughs> So to protect his own skin, they lie to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh takes Sarah in to be his wife and then gets struck by God until he finds out that she's actually Abram's wife. And then Pharaoh comes to Abram. Dude, dude, why didn't you tell me she was... I would have left her alone if I'd have known she was married. He saw the hand of God against Pharaoh. He saw how God had preserved their marriage. He saw how God had prospered him. When he and Lot divided the land, remember they went up on the hillside and Abram says to Lot, all right, pick. You go to the east, I'll go to the west. You go to the west, I'll go to the east. We got we to gotta split the herds and quit battling, having our, our shepherds fight amongst each other. We need to quit this. You pick. You pick the land that you want. Well, Lot's no dummy. He picked the land that looked good. And he took it. And Abram said, okay, then I'll take this land over here. And his herds and his flocks just kept building and building and building and building. And God just kept dumping the blessings on him. He saw this. When he led his commando force, to rescue Lot. It was a small army compared to the folks he was going up against. And yet, they were shepherds. Pitchforks and shepherd crooks against a military force. And they won. Why did they win? Because God was with them. See, so when God... I mean, it's only recorded here, I'm the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans and gave you this land to possess. That's not a whole lot. But to Abram, that's that's one of those rewind points where you go back through your memory. And what does that mean? I called you out of the land of the Chaldeans. Look at all of the preservation that God has done for Abram. When you think back to the things that God has done, it's easy to see the foundation for faith. God promised here that he was going to get me to this land, and he's done it. God's promised to keep me safe, and he's done it. He's promised to prosper, and he's done it. He, all of his promises have come true. So when I'm standing here at 80, 85 years old, and God says, you're going to be the father of so many people that are going to outnumber the stars in the sky and you can't count those stars. I'm going to believe him. I'm going to have faith. He knew what the character of God was. God said, 
I made a promise. I'm going to keep it. But then, if you keep reading, in verse 8, now now remember, in verse 6, and he, that's Abram, believed the Lord, and he, that's God, counted it to him, that's Abram, as righteousness. Then in verse 8, he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Wait a minute. We just read that Abram had faith. Having faith doesn't mean we don't have doubt. Having faith doesn't mean we don't question. Having faith doesn't mean that we will encounter things and inherently understand them. Again, Abram is 80 to 85 years old. How many of you, gentlemen, okay, all right, I'm going to hit home here, sir, right? How old are you? 53. One on the way. Outside of your mind, right? I can't even wrap my head around the idea. Abram is looking at himself in a proverbial mental mirror. I am 85 years old. My wife is 75 years old. The time for having children, that train has done left the station and gotten to its destination already and been decommissioned. How am I going to know that this is going to happen? I trust you, God, but come on. How will I know? Give me a guarantee. Give me some kind of surety. Now, i got to tell you, I've mentioned to some of you before that I am that, that kind of preacher geek that when I saw R.C. Sproul preach in person back in Mobile in 2011, I had him autograph my Bible right there. Okay? He, uh, whoops, I'm also a pack rat. Um, he, he was talking at one conference. Uh, people kept asking him for his life verse. His life verse. You ever heard that phrase? What is your life verse? What is that one verse that is so significant to you that that kind of defines your faith? And he really pondered it. He really didn't like the idea, this whole you know one verse out of all. Really? 66 books, you want me to pick one verse? But finally, he did. And, and now when he signs stuff, he signs it with his life verse. Genesis 15, 17. Since we're in the neighborhood, that might be a 12. Um, he was old. His handwriting is not great. Um, so let, let me flip back here. Yeah, it's 12. Not 17. 15, 12. Let me read the prelude to this. God said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Verse 10, Abram brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Verse 12, this is, this is what R.C. Sproul wrote in the front cover of my Bible. Okay? 
As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. By the way, that's Egypt. Okay? But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with a great with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age, and they shall come back in here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. No, I was right. It was 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. That's the verse that R.C. signed my Bible with. A flaming, smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces on the ground. Huh? What? He said that the first person who read that when he wrote it flipped open to it and read it immediately and went, I think you got the wrong verse. No. See, what what that represented right there was such a, a, a huge... This, this display of grace was ginormous. In those days when two kings or two landowners would make a contract, right? Instead of drafting up a legal document and then both signing their name to it, right? What they would do is they would take these animals, they would slaughter them, and they would lay them half and half, half and half, half and half. And then the two parties of the contract would walk between those halves of the animals. Okay, sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? What that was signifying and and what was being said was, if I don't keep my end of the contract, I am authorizing you to do to me what we did to these animals. I am <laughs> if I don't keep my contract, it's it don't you're not taking me to court. I authorize you to kill me. They were signing the pledge with their life. And here, who is it that walks between the halves of the animals? Just one person. The person of God walks between. He makes a covenant with Abram and says, if I fail to keep my promise, you can kill me. Really? Do you see how that's an act of grace? Do you see how we have this idea that if we ask God, why am I going through this thing? If we, if we shake our fist at God because we're angry at the circumstances we go through, if we have any doubts that God is going to keep His word, we have this idea that God's waiting behind a bush to zap us. Right? He's waiting for me to get out to the parking lot and start my car so he can cause one of the pistons to shoot through the top of the engine. That's not who God is. When Abram says, how will I know this is going to happen? God says, watch. I made you a promise. Now I'm going to show you that promise. The character of God is such that he's going to keep his word 
And He shows us grace. And He shows us mercy. And Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Even when he bowed to his wife's desires, okay, because even though Abram is looking at the biological wristwatch, okay, Sarah has the biological grandfather clock. So I don't know how many times over dinner they probably had this discussion. Well, you know, God promised us we're going to have a large family. And Sarah says, I don't think there's any flowers growing in that desert. It ain't going to happen. Time and time again until finally she says, you know what? Here's how we do this. This is my servant. She's young. She's fertile. You conceive a child with her in my place, and that will be our son. Now, don't imagine this happened one time. I expect it probably happened multiple times that she tried this idea, and Abraham said, no, God said. But then... He finally relented, and Ishmael was born. But his faith was still counted to him as righteousness. Even when he lied about Sarah's identity again. Now she's, now she's 80 years old, and they go into a town, and he says, You're still a looker. The king, he's going to want you for his own, and he did. And Abimelech was cursed. And Abimelech found out why he was cursed. And he came to Abraham and he said, Really? Why didn't you tell me? But Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. Faith is not a guarantee against doubt. Faith is not a guarantee against questioning. Faith is not a guarantee against sin. But if you go back to Romans 5, 1, now you've got to flip all the way back to the New Testament again. When you flip back to Romans 5, 1, and read what Paul says there, therefore, and when you see that word in Scripture, what do you need to do? Figure out what it's there for, right? What are we pointing back to? He's pointing back to chapter 4. And chapter 4, what shall we say was gained by Abraham according to the flesh? Nothing. I'll abbreviate. That's all of chapter 4. Paul says nothing was attributed to Abraham because of the flesh. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... We have what? We have peace with God. Do you remember what James says our attitude towards God is in our natural state? 
We are at enmity, which is the opposite of peace. We're button heads with God in our natural state. But since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Right? We have peace. We can have peace with God because He doesn't count us as His enemies anymore. He doesn't count us as strangers. He doesn't see us opposed to Him because of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Once that has been applied to our lives, we're now counted as God's children. That's what it means to have peace with God. Now, that doesn't mean all of us have peace with our parents. All right? But we have peace with God. Because He has declared us to be righteous. And unless you get the wrong idea, when we say that God declares us to be justified, He declares us to be righteous, this isn't just an arbitrary word that happens. God doesn't just say, okay, I'm going to forget all the stuff that you've done. Don't do it again. God declares us to be just because our sin has been paid for. He declares us to be righteous because our unrighteousness has been dealt with. It's gone. He doesn't just push it aside and say, I'm going to forget that ever happened. It's been paid for. Jesus' death makes us righteous. Whether we live that way or not. That's hard for us to wrap our heads around, by the way. So much so that um, Martin Luther coined the phrase that we are both just and sinner. Righteous and unrighteous lives in the same body. Because by God's declaration, because of Jesus' death, and because of Jesus' righteousness, we are righteous. But we still sin. So we're still unrighteous. It's kind of like a snake, right? What happens? You cut the head off a snake? Eventually, yeah. Actually, it immediately dies. Just it doesn't catch on to that fact right away. <laughs> right? Snakes, snakes. If if you cut a snake's head off, uh, especially a venomous snake, the head may continue to to try to strike at you, even though it doesn't have a body to propel it anymore. Like the snake doesn't realize. Kind of like a chicken. You cut a chicken's head off. It runs all over the place if you don't tie it down or hold it down or whatever. Right? That's why that phrase evolved, you know, run around like a chicken with his head cut off, aimlessly running around. Our flesh is dead. Our flesh, that unrighteousness, that sin nature is dead and gone. It just hasn't realized it yet. It's still running around the courtyard. The head's been cut off the chicken. Jesus is the means by which we have peace with God. Jesus is the key to that grace 
that we stand in. And if we keep going, because I don't like picking verses out of context, if we keep going, in verse 2 he says, Through Him, Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace, this unmerited favor that God shows us in which we stand, and we rejoice in that certain expectation, that hope of God's glory. And we rejoice in our sufferings like we looked at last week. Because suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces that certain expectation, that hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, we have hope. Because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, we exercise faith. Because of the Holy Spirit, we have peace with God. Because of Jesus, we have peace with God. That passes our understanding. I don't get it. I would love to be able to tell you how I can be just and sinner. In the Latin, as Martin Luther put it, simul justus et peccator. Simultaneously, just and sinner. How can God look at me and say that I'm righteous? Because there is a filter on his lens that he's looking through. And that filter is Jesus. And how can I live a life that is anything but sinful? That's the Holy Spirit. That is only by living in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want to challenge you this morning. Put your faith to the test. Exercise it. We we talked this morning in Sunday school about being bold about having boldness and discernment to speak to people, to share our testimony. I mentioned last week, this is the time of year, like it or not, this is the time of year in the United States, in the Western world, where people celebrate the birth of Christ. This is the time in the United States when people expect the church to talk about Jesus Don't let them down. Talk about Jesus. Don't do it just at this time, but do it at this time. Share your testimony with people. When somebody wishes you a Merry Christmas, wish them a Merry Christmas. If somebody says Happy Holidays, point out to them that, yes, these are holy days. Ooh. What? Share your faith with the people that you encounter over the next few weeks at the very least. You know, you've heard me say the statistic is that one in ten people in the church share their faith. It means nine out of ten don't. If I do a rough count of people around the sanctuary, 
we have somewhere in the neighborhood of about 20 people here. So if we were to apply that statistic to our congregation this morning, including everybody, that means there's two of us who have shared our faith. The rest have not. This is the perfect time. The world is expecting it. Step out on faith and share Jesus with people.